Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. And once again, welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. I understand you have a pretty deep topic for us today. Yes, a very interesting question, and it really comes back to something that Job asked way back in the book of Job. And personally, I believe Job may have been the oldest book in the Bible. doesn't describe the oldest events, but I believe that Job may have been written around 2000 B.C. For one thing, Job has over 70 of what we call hapax logomenae, that is, words that are unique to that book and that book alone and are found nowhere else in the Hebrew language. Another thing is that it talks about creatures that might have existed shortly after the flood but would have died out shortly thereafter, like the Leviathan and the Behemoth. Some try to say the Leviathan was a crocodile, but there's too many things in the way Job describes the crocodile or the way God describes it in speaking to Job that don't correspond with the crocodile. Likewise, the behemoth, which some say is an elephant, but when it talks about the behemoth dragging his tail as a cedar and so on, that certainly does not sound like an elephant and other things that simply don't match. When you look to the fact that Job's wealth is not measured in terms of money, but measured in terms of cattle and horses and the like, that would be true at that time. When we read of Job acting as a priest, performing sacrifices and the like for his children, that would suggest that Job is before the institution of the the Aaronic priesthood and so on. So several reasons for thinking that Job might be a very old book. But in the midst of all Job's distress, he asks this question in chapter 4 and verse 14, If a man die, shall he live again? And that's a question that people have been asking for thousands of years since that time. The Bible gives us the answers, but many times we want some other answers as well. The question that we might ask, first of all, is what is death? Well, death can be defined sometimes as a separation, like the separation of the soul from the body, the separation of the person from his surroundings, the separation of the soul from the earth, and some in science and in medicine, we used to talk about heart death, and death was defined as when the heart stopped beating. We moved more toward what we call brain death, that is the flat line, as they call it, when there are no more brain waves. But I'll give you an interesting case where this became a significant issue. It could involve a lot of things, like when a transplant is in order, like when you can remove organs for a transplant, if the person is heart dead but not brain dead and so on, what definition of death are we going to use? The Bible's definition is a little different. As we see in the book of James, James says, as the body without the spirit is dead, and so... Death is when the spirit leaves the body. But we have no machine that is capable of measuring that. And so we look to heart death, but more recently, more to brain death. I'm going to give you an interesting case where this became an issue. 
It was in Kentucky in the 1950s. It involved a older couple. They were both in a second marriage, and each had children by the first marriage. Anyway, they had a collision with a train at a railroad intersection, and the husband, his head hit something, probably the steering wheel, and he was killed apparently instantly. The wife's body went through the windshield, and she was decapitated in the process. And when they came to her body a few seconds later, they said that blood was coming out of her neck in spurts, suggesting that the heart was still beating for a few seconds or maybe even a minute or so after death, which the lower court took to mean that she had survived her husband by a couple of minutes, and therefore the estate passed from him to her, and then from her to her children, and his children got nothing. Wow. Well, the case went up to the Kentucky Supreme Court, and they reversed. The Kentucky Supreme Court said that their deaths were sufficiently close in time that it could not be determined which one had died first, and that therefore it would be considered simultaneous death, and that therefore neither of them passed the estate to the other, rather each of them, their own estates passed to their respective children, and which probably was a very fair decision, but it illustrates the problem in using heart death or brain death or any other single definition of death. But as I say, we don't have a machine to measure when the soul or spirit leaves the body. And so it may be that brain death is the best thing that we can come to. There was a movie that came out Actually, it was a book first in 2010, a bestseller, and was made into a movie in 2011. It was called Heaven is for Real. It was a story about a four-year-old boy. He was a pastor's son, and he was going through a very serious and life-threatening surgical procedure, and in the process of that, they almost lost him on the operating table. Now, they didn't completely lose him ever. I mean, at all time during this, all of this, he was never flatlined. At all time, there were some brain waves. But during this time, well, he survived. He came out of it. And when he was done, he was talking about being in heaven and talking about conversations with angels and how angels were so kind to him, talking about meeting his father's grandfather there, a man that he simply called Pops, and who was very nice to him and friendly to him, but who his parents had never said anything about. Wow. And so how he would have known about that by any natural means is difficult to say. He talked about how... His mother, while he was on the operating table, was in the waiting room and was talking to people on the phone, asking them to pray for him, and talking about how his father, the pastor, was in another room at this time, praying to God and sometimes yelling at God, and, well, how did you know that? I saw you. And anyway, hard to know what to make out of that, but I emphasize again that 
this is not a matter of somebody who had died. He had never brain waves. Well, for that body that was on the operating table, brain waves never totally ceased. So that's not, not quite in the same category as some of the near-death experiences that we sometimes hear about. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of those as we move on. But first of all, what does the scripture say? Well, Job himself gives an answer to the question, and Job's answer is probably as strong an affirmation of the resurrection as we find anywhere in the Old Testament when he says in chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms shall destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He knows that even though he's going to die, and even though his body is going to decay, yet he is going to be physically resurrected, because in my flesh I shall see God. And his Redeemer, Jesus, is going to stand in the latter day upon the earth. Strong statement of faith that Job comes to, and part of it he comes to after some very severe trials in his life. But I'm going to look at a few more examples, and particularly out of the Old Testament. One of the interesting things here is that the Sadducees, and we read in Jesus' time about these two sects, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you might say that the Pharisees were the Old Testament biblical literalists. That they would apply the law as literally as they could possibly apply it. And they took the books of the Bible as being God's word, that is the books of the Old Testament, as being God's word. And they gave them a literal interpretation. And they were very much against compromise with the Greeks, and the Romans, and Greek philosophy and the like. The Sadducees, you might describe as more the religious liberals of the day. They accepted only the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as being the Word of God. And one of the things that distinguishes them from the Pharisees is that they did not believe in a resurrection. Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees, we're told in the Scriptures, did not. Now, some say that means the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. That may not be strictly accurate. They may believe in some life after death, sort of like the Greek Hades, a shadowy existence, and so on, but not in a resurrection. Well, I'm going to ask us to look here at the way Jesus counters the Sadducees. And I'm going to look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 23. The same day came unto him the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. By the way, if you have a hard time remembering who believed in the resurrection and who didn't, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And that's why they were so sad, you see. Mm-hmm. But, that's an effective device. <laughs> and asked him, saying, Master, 
Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, died, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. At last the woman died also. This is an example that they're using here, a trick question that they're hoping will trap Jesus into his silly belief about the resurrection. And so they ask, therefore, in this resurrection that you believe in, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her as a wife. Now, this is a question going to be difficult for Jesus to answer, they think. If he believes in a resurrection, he's got to answer this question, whose wife is she going to be? Jesus answers, You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus is saying that marriage does not take place in heaven. Now, I don't think that means, as a few take it, that you won't know your wife in heaven, whether your relationship with your husband or your wife in heaven is going to be the same as it is on earth. That's another question, but... I believe that we will know our spouses in heaven. We're told that our knowledge will be more full in heaven than it is here, which tells me that the things that I know here on earth are not going to be forgotten in heaven. But Jesus goes on then to say, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, think here how Jesus has trapped them and turned their question against them and showing how really illogical they are being. He's saying, okay, now you Sadducees, even you Sadducees accept the first five books of the Bible, particularly Genesis and Exodus, as being the word of God. Now, in Exodus, Moses sees God God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, what he's saying here is that if God is saying he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and if God is the God of the living, well, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be living. even though physically they've been dead for, by this time, about 400 years. So, obviously then, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live after they have physically died. Well, there are other passages, though, for example, even in the first five books of the Bible, and admittedly, we don't see as much about life after death in those first five books as we see later, but... In Genesis 5.24, we read that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In some way, he was taken up to heaven. He lived after what would be his normal life cycle and death. Or you can look to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, 
Wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Or consider the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, one of the strongest Old Testament passages about life after death. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall come a time of trouble as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn away to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So clearly Daniel is speaking about life after death, and God certainly tells Daniel that there is going to be life after death. We can see the same in the Psalms. Psalm 23, where as a passage probably many of us have memorized since childhood, and the last part of Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or Psalm 49:15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Or Psalm 73:24, Thou wilt guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven besides you? My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or one, and I find this especially interesting here, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Now granted, the word spirit there, rock, could also mean breath, but why would we be saying the breath returns to God? That makes no sense. In other words, the spirit returns to God after death. Well, that's the Old Testament. And even though there are some who will tell you that the Old Testament says nothing about life after death, by the way, Jews themselves are divided about life after death. In fact, Nita Totenberg, once on public radio, made the statement that the Jews do not believe in life after death. Well, she received a lot of angry calls from Jews saying, yes, we do. And so she corrected herself. And then the next time she received angry calls from Jews saying, no, we don't. Jews are divided on the subject. And more conservative Jews generally would believe in life after death. And more liberal or reformed Jews, perhaps not. But anyway, so, but clearly... The Old Testament teaches life after death. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, let's look at a few New Testament passages. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, Do not store up riches for yourselves here on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and robbers break in and steal. Instead, store up riches for yourselves in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and robbers cannot break in and steal. For your heart will always be where your riches are. Or 
Luke 13, verses 19, or 29 through 30. People will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God. Then those who are now last will be first, and those who are first will be last. Or John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Colossians, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Paul tells us, You have been raised to life with Christ. So set your heart on the things that are in heaven, where Christ sits on his throne at the right side of God. Keep your minds fixed on things there, not things on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life is Christ, and when he appears, then you too will appear with him and share his glory. Or, finally, and there's many more that I could be citing here, but First Peter we read, So we look forward to possessing the rich blessings that God keeps for his people. He keeps them for you in heaven, where they cannot decay or spoil or fade away. They are for you, who through faith are kept safe by God's power for the salvation which is ready to be revealed at the end of time. Well, clearly, the Old and New Testaments are telling us that we will live after death. We will live if we believe in Jesus Christ, trusting him as our Savior. As we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus himself said, remember the time when he raised Lazarus from the dead? And he says in John eleven twenty five, I use this at just about every funeral that I preach, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. Well, the scriptures then very clearly tell us about life after death. But sometimes we have a few doubts in our minds. Sometimes we hesitate. Sometimes we wonder. And if we are wondering about this, are there other reasons? Let me suggest a few other reasons that I think it makes sense to believe that we will live after we have gone through death in this earthly life. Natural man, the even primitive man, understood that there was something that left the body when a man died. Even an animal. You see a live cow and a dead cow. They look just alike in many ways, but clearly there's a major difference. Something has left that dead cow. What is it? After the break.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Talking about uh, life after death. Colonel, this is a topic that I've actually been pretty fascinated with this ever since I was about 15 and I read a book called Life After Life. I think it was by uh, Dr. Raymond Moody. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But uh, you were describing how the, when, when you look at, for instance, an animal carcass, it still looks like a, a cow or whatever it may be. But, but something is missing. I wanted to share with you, uh, I had a friend who was a medical examiner. And so anytime someone died in the county, it was his job to examine the body and, you know, you know do all the official paperwork. And I would, I would see him on a regular basis. And, and one day he said something to me that has just stuck with me. And he said, you know, when you see enough dead bodies, you really start to understand that uh, it's just an empty vessel at that point. And what he was referring to is there's a, there is a spirit that animates that body when the person is alive and when they are not there, it's an empty shell. And and to hear him talk about, I mean, he's he's talking in very clinical terms, but that was a unexpected spiritual observation that I thought he made. A very good observation. Yes, something does leave the body. And what is it? Well, of course, we know from the scripture it is the human spirit. But let's just look at it now from the medical standpoint or the standpoint of experiences. Let's talk for a moment about near-death experiences. I'm a little skeptical about new-death experiences, partly because many report things like light, peace, heaven. Very few say that during this experience that they went to hell, even though their lives and their testimonies would suggest that they had no reason to see heaven. Many times the report is that it was like going through a tunnel and there was light at the end of the tunnel. But someone would meet them at the end of the tunnel. And something here suggests to me that maybe this is the mind in extremity thinking certain things. Protestants, for example, will commonly say that they saw Jesus at the end of the temple. Catholics will commonly say they saw Mary at the end of the temple. And again, that suggests to me that maybe in this extreme situation, the mind is doing certain things. I have no doubt that the vast majority of those who have gone through an experience like this sincerely believe that this is real. And I'm not going to say absolutely that it isn't. Just a year or so ago, my wife's aunt passed away. She was, I believe, 95 or 96, strong believer in Jesus Christ. But as her last couple days before she died, she'd be saying things like the bells. The bells are so beautiful. Hearing bells. Or they have such beautiful eyes. Who has such beautiful eyes? Angel, the angels. They have such beautiful eyes. Was this angels actually coming to take her to her heavenly home? I don't know for sure, but it may be. I have no doubt she's there now. Going back to the boy and the movie we started with there, Heaven is for Real. As I say, he almost died, but did not quite die on that operating table. He still had brain waves, but there are people who have been brain dead and who have lived again. 
We could argue about whether they were really dead or not, whether the body had ever, or the spirit had ever left the body, but they had no heartbeat and they had no brain waves. There are examples of people who are brain dead, according to the meters, they're flatlined, as we call it. They report that during this time, they see themselves usually from a little bit above. They report hearing conversations, maybe between relatives or between doctors and nurses and so on. Conversations that are accurate, that did take place exactly as they are described. One example, one reported that she felt like she was looking down from almost the ceiling, looking down upon herself there on that operating table. And there were ceiling fans. And there was the ceiling fan right below her. And on the top of one of the blades of that ceiling fan, there was a red sticker. Well, after all this is done and she is revived and she is insisting that she saw all this, then she just insisted, get a ladder, go climb up there and see if there is a red sticker on top of that ceiling fan. And sure enough, there was. Mm. How could she have known this by any natural means? Well, what does that prove? Does it prove that they died? No, I don't think it proves that they died. But it does prove that human consciousness is independent of the brain. That brain death does not mean that we are no longer conscious. In other words, the spirit continues to live after the brain is dead. Whether those people had actually died, whether the spirit had actually left the body or just acquired knowledge, I don't know. As I say, I am skeptical. We are told in Scripture, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And so I am skeptical that people die and actually return to life, with, of course, the exception of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was resurrected, and several in the Bible, like, for example, Lazarus, and the servant of the centurion, and the young maiden, and so on, that were raised from the dead, I would say in regard to them that this was not a resurrection, it was a resuscitation. Now, they were genuinely dead, don't misunderstand me, but they didn't receive a resurrection body like Jesus had. When they were raised from the dead, they had the same mortal body they had before, and I don't see them walking around today, so they died at some time in the future, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe many years. But I, I call that technically a resuscitation of a genuinely dead body, not a resurrection. But with a few exceptions like that, and I'm not going to limit God. God could do what he wants to do. But I really don't believe that, that people who die return to life until the resurrection takes place. But now there are some other reasons to believe in life after death as well. And let me suggest a few that I think you, in order to, for these to make sense, we have to presuppose the truth of the scriptures. And if you do believe that Jesus lived, that he was the son of God, that he died and rose from the dead and paid for your sins on the cross, but you still have some 
some doubts about eternal life, let me suggest a few other reasons that might make sense. One of these is God's justice. Now, we describe the qualities of God as being perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect justice, perfect truthfulness. We also describe him as being absolute mercy and perfect love. But when we think of this quality that God is perfect justice, well, we live in a world where justice is a far cry from being perfect. Injustices take place in our courts on a regular basis. And if they take place on a regular basis here in the United States, well, remember, our legal system is probably better than the vast majority of others. And you think of things that never go to court at all, slights and offenses that take place. People commit wrongs regularly and don't get in trouble for it. People do the right thing under difficult circumstances many times, and they don't get reward for it. And so if God is a God of perfect justice, then there must be a justice that takes place after death. The great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, however you want to describe it, in some way, there must be life after death, or else there would be no perfect justice. Another reason is God's economy. Now, when I say God's economy, what I mean by this is that God has gone through a great deal of effort to produce each one of us, and there are billions of us, and each of us is unique. Your body is composed of trillions of cells. Now, each of those cells, just take a brain cell, for example. Each of those cells has enough DNA inside it, information from DNA, that if that was all printed out on a computer, it would print into computer paper stacks that would be several stories high. That's how much information is in one single human brain cell. Add that to the trillions of other brain cells that make up your brain, the cells that make up your other organs, and put all that together into one person, and then multiply that by the billions of people who have lived, are lived, are living, and will live throughout the history of the world. Just think of all the information God has put within us. Now, each person, then, is a remarkable and a unique creation. Think of what God went through to create you as a person. Now, if he did that, does it seem likely that he would just annihilate all of that when you die, and it'd be all over with? If he went through all of that, don't you think it likely that he would preserve you unto himself for the future, even for eternity? Now, what about God's love? 
I'd make an argument on God's love. We talked about his justice. We talked about his economy. Now let's talk about his love. God is a God who loves us with infinite love. And if he loves us with that kind of love, why would he want to simply let us perish after, say, 70 years? Would he not want to keep us around for himself? If God really loves us like the Bible says he loves us, certainly he would want to keep us for himself through eternity. Next, we come to God's redemption, his justice, his economy, his love. Now his redemption. Think about that a moment. Why would God create us and sustain us and then send his son to die on a cross for our justification? If all he intends to do is just annihilate us when we die. What are we saved from if we just are annihilated to death? His redemption must mean that he intends to keep us for the, for the future. But now let's talk about not only his death on the cross, where he suffered that cruel death for us, but let's think also about his resurrection. Christ's resurrection from the dead is proof that we will be resurrected as well. In fact, Paul makes that argument so effectively there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 12, for example, he tells us, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? He may be speaking to the Sadducees there, or he may be speaking to other skeptical people at the time, but if Christ rose from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? His death on the cross is proof that there is such a thing as resurrection. Then he says in chapter 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But as many as every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that they that are Christ at his second coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Okay, so Christ is risen. He is going to put all things under his feet when he is risen. But as we see the proof of the resurrection, Paul gives us that proof. He lays it out just like a lawyer giving a closing argument that he is seen of the women. He is seen of Cephas, that is Peter. He's seen of the 12 disciples. He is seen of more than 500 people at once. And he says of these 500 that most remain to this day, though some have died. He's saying, you can check this out. Ask them if any one of these witnesses says, no, uh, that's a lie. I never saw Christ rise from the dead or 
even says, you know, I thought so at the time, but I've been thinking it over since then, and I'm thinking it's more of optical illusion. Anyway, so all of this evidence that Christ is risen from the dead, and you can make a strong case for the divinity of Christ just by looking to the resurrection. As I say, the evidence is in its favor. Look at all the witnesses. The other explanations just don't make any sense. For example, the explanation that, well, the disciples stole the body while we slept. Roman sentries sleeping on post is a capital offense. Are they really going to confess to a capital offense? And then, I wish I had them on the witness stand, actually. I'd love to ask them questions like, okay, so no. You say you slept through this whole thing, and you didn't hear when the disciples came. They must have made a commotion. You didn't hear that? And you didn't hear the stone being moved? You didn't hear Jesus being carried out of the tomb? You didn't hear any of that? Now, if you were really asleep the whole time, how do you know the disciples came and stole the body? By saying you were asleep the whole time, you just said you don't know anything. Or another explanation that, well, he was just in a coma. He didn't really sleep, or he didn't really die. First of all, you have the centurion who takes a spear and pierces it through Jesus' side. And we're told that water and blood flowed out, which would mean that the heart was pierced. That centurion had conducted, I'm sure, hundreds of crucifixions and would be perfectly capable of distinguishing death from a coma. Also, we read that they wrapped him in the shroud, and a shroud was about 30 feet long. After they wrap him around the 30 feet of cloth, after he has been bled and suffered so much under crucifixion, and then they put him into the tomb, let's just suppose by some chance he is still alive and in a coma this time. Now, three days later, he's been without food and water the whole time, and he awakes from that coma three days later, and then in the state that he's in at that time, he is strong enough that he can break loose from 30 feet of shroud wrapped around him and then push a stone aside. That's a greater miracle than a resurrection. Anyway, so the evidence is that Christ rose from the dead and other explanations simply don't make sense. But take a look at what he says about how that affects our faith in a resurrection, starting in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment of the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal put on immortality. So, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal, mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of death is the law. 
but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Christ's resurrection is the final proof that we too will live again with him. Well, Brian, I don't know how much time we have left, but what are your thoughts? we got about five minutes left here. Uh, I don't know if it's, it maybe maybe I'm just somebody who's been running on blind faith my whole life, but um, I don't know why it has always been very easy for me to believe that there is, is something more beyond, even though it's not something I can quantify with any of my five senses. Um, certainly I can't uh, scientifically prove it to anyone. I've never seen a spirit. I've never heard a disembodied voice, you know, speak into my ear or anything like that. But for some reason, it, it just, it for all the reasons you've outlined, if God truly loves his children, then, uh, then it, it makes sense that uh, he would have made the arrangements for us, you know, to, to be with him, if that's what we choose, if that's, that's what we seek. Well, it's interesting that we find still, even despite secularism and Darwinism and all these other things being forced down our throats in school and so on, nevertheless, we find that the majority of people still do believe. There was a study that took place from Pew Research in 2021, two years ago, said that 73% of people believe in heaven. That is down from what it once was, but still it's nearly two th- or nearly three-fourths. 62% believe in hell. 61% say they believe in both heaven and hell. And that means there are about 26% who believe in neither. But fair number who believe in heaven but don't believe in hell. But 1% who believe in hell but not heaven. Anyway, I was wondering about those people. You would certainly think that if people believe in hell, they certainly would do something to ensure that's not where they're going. Study showed also Arizona Christian University did a study and showed some 56%, I believe it was, of people say that they think they're going to go to heaven. Only 2% think they're going to go to hell. Well, those 2%, if they really think that, you think that they'd be doing something to try to make sure that doesn't happen, like believing in Jesus Christ. But Anyway, the point of all of this is that, yes, concern about what happens after death is still a major concern on people's minds, and it should be on our minds, because the day is coming. As I always say at a funeral, a couple of things I want you to know. First of all, I want you to note the family of the deceased. Notice they sit here, they're mourning. But they're not mourning like the world mourns, because they know that in Jesus Christ, they're going to see their loved one again at the resurrection. Second thing, I'd like you to look at all of these tombstones around here. And every one of them has a name on it and a date. Now, someday there's going to be another tombstone. And it's going to have your name on it and your dates. Are you prepared for that? And then third, I ask you to remember the words of Jesus to Mary. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, he that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. We quote that very often, but there is a part of it we don't quote, and that's the last three words. 
Believest thou this? That's the question I'd like to ask our listeners. Believest thou this? Because eternal destiny depends upon where we place our faith. Beautifully said. And, uh, you know, for, for those who find themselves in a, in a place of mourning right now, hopefully this is something that can provide um, comfort and, and some direction for them to, to lift their eyes up. Thank you, Colonel. I look forward to our Thank conversation you. next week. You bet. See you then.